In this episode of 2000 Bucks, three scientifically proven strategies to build resilience. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Okay, so let me ask you something. Have you ever wanted to sit down with one of the founders of great startups of today like Dropbox, Wikipedia, Udemy, Airbnb, Groupon, and ask them real detailed stories of how they got started, how they went from $0 to the first sale to $1,000 to $100,000 to $1 million, $10 million, $100 million, even a $1 billion. I mean, how do they really go through those steps? That's what my friend Andrew Warner is doing at Mixergy, and I absolutely love the de- level of details he gets out of these founders. It's unprecedented. For example, when Andrew interviewed co-founder of Udemy, Gagan Biani, Andrew really drilled into how Udemy grew from nothing. Why did they fail for a whole summer to get any customers? How did they find a partnership? How did they make their first sale? How did they finally get traction? Andrew has done over 1,000 such interviews with some of the biggest names, and they are really helpful. And you can find all of them at Mixergy.com. Mixergy's annual membership is $399 per year, but for this launch of 2000 Books Podcast, Andrew has been very kind to give away three annual Mixergy memberships. And you can win one of these three annual Mixergy memberships worth $399 each by just texting the word SUMMARY to 44222, and you will have all the details as to how to enter the launch contest. Okay, so now let's get into the interview. Today on the show, we have Dr. Alex Lickerman, the author of The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self. Dr. Lickerman is a physician and the founder and CEO of ImagineMD. Before starting ImagineMD, Dr. Lickerman practiced at the University of Chicago Medical Center for 20 years. So welcome to the show, Dr. Lickerman. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the undefeated mind. What does it mean? Like, what is an undefeated mind? So I think of uh, having an undefeated mind as uh, being uh, as two things, having as being the two sides to one coin. The first side is uh, having the ability when adversity lands on you, as invariably it does in life, not just to survive, but to thrive, to thrive in the face of that adversity. And then the other side of that coin, which is related, but something a little bit different is when you have a goal or a dream and you begin taking uh, steps towards that goal, as obstacles invariably arise, as they always do, how discouraged do you become? Are you able to uh, withstand becoming discouraged so that you don't quit or want to quit or your performance is not degraded? Or do you get so discouraged that you do quit or even if you continue, your performance is so degraded that you fail in the end to achieve your goal? So basically being resilient is the key yes. here. Yes. And I think a lot of research points to the idea that of all the factors that lead to success, resilience or grit is the biggest determinant. Well, it's, cl- it's clearly not enough just to be smart. If you don't have, if you don't have stick-to-itiveness and grit and you can't withstand adversity when it lands on you, it's impossible to be successful. Yeah. So this book, let's, let's give the readers a brief overview of the book. What can the readers expect from the book? Just, just a 10,000 feet overview. Right. So 10,000 feet overview. Basically, my thesis is that resilience is not something you're either lucky enough to be born with or unlucky enough to be born without, but something you can take very specific steps to learn. 
And like anything else in life where, the, you know, there are paths and, and techniques that work. And actually there's evidence, as I present in the book, that shows these techniques work and other things that people may think work or want to work, but don't. So uh, sort of like, you know, if you wanted to show up to win a baseball game, if you showed up prepared to play soccer, you're not likely to win the baseball game. If you show up in life with armed with tools that really are shown and proven to help you uh, become and, and maintain your resilience, you really want to employ the tools that work. You want to be playing the right rules with the right rules in the right game. Yeah. And uh, in this book, you talk about so many different strategies and techniques to really employ the power or harness the power of resilience, harness the power of your undefeated mind. And one of my favorites is the idea of finding a purpose, finding um, finding a mission behind which you, you can align yourself. And as an entrepreneur, it's really easy to get distracted by opportunities. It's really easy to say, I want to do that because it seems like a good idea. It seems like something I can make money from. But what you're saying is that's not always a good thing to do. Well, I think one thing that unites all entrepreneurs is that they're very capable people in general and capable people tend to get asked to do a lot of things or find opportunity in a lot of different areas. And there's a real danger if you don't have a guiding principle, a reason why you're you're going to be doing what you're doing to be easily taken off in different directions and, and sort of entranced by the opportunity of the moment. And in fact, one of the nice benefits of having a clearly defined mission is it helps you know when to say yes and when to say no. Because if something may look really interesting to you and something you want to do, but if it doesn't fit into your core purpose, then you should probably be saying no to it because it's just going to distract you off the path of achieving the goal that you're really aiming for. Yeah. And you have this amazing research study about how uh, having a purpose really helps us uh, not only face the challenges, but also not even feel that those challenges were that big. The example of the electric shock experiment. So let's talk about that. Sure. So uh, my, my thesis and the reason I think that having a, a mission statement for oneself is so crucial is because in addition to what I just said it does, more centrally, it actually uh, makes you more resilient. And there was an interesting study that shows how when we have a reason why we're doing something, it actually makes us uh, less bothered by and often less sensitive to pain and in some cases physical pain so the experiment you're referring to is where uh, an experimenter uh, took two people two groups of people uh, where they were administering electric shocks to figure out what their threshold was and what they told the people uh, in both groups was uh, we're doing this to figure out um, it's a learning experiment to figure out how people learn and they told the uh, the experimental group they said uh, they figured out what their tolerance for shocks were. And then they said, we, we'd like to continue, but you don't have to. But let me just tell you, if you do allow us to continue, what you experience is really going to contribute to our future knowledge about how people learn. And the control group, the experimenters said, you have no choice but to continue. And uh, they gave them no opportunity to form a sense of purpose or value about what they were doing. They, they didn't say anything one way or the other. And what they found was, the, the subjects to whom they gave the ability to feel a sense of purpose about the pain that they were experiencing, because of course these shocks hurt, you couldn't do these experiments anymore, um, they not only reported subjectively experiencing less pain, but there was an objective measure um, having to do with sort of a sweat conduction test uh, that is a way of measuring physiologically how much pain are subjects experiencing. And what they found in their surprise was those who were in the experimental group and given a chance to form a sense of purpose about being shocked literally experienced less pain. The take-home message to me is having a reason why, an important reason why that you believe is important, actually makes you 
to some degree more impervious to pain. And uh, in other parts of the book, I talk about the incredible similarities between physical pain and emotional pain, uh, where they light up in the brain are almost identical with a very few exceptions. And so I don't think it's a great leap to imagine that if uh, having a sense of purpose can make you more resistant to physical pain, it also to some degree makes you more resistant, resistant to emotional pain, which is a great benefit to an entrepreneur. That's right. That's right. I mean, uh, just the idea that thinking about something or um, having that emotion of uh, that purpose behind something can actually physically, not only mentally, not only uh, in some woo-woo kind of way, but scientifically proven physical research that says their pain is lessened just because of the way we think about it. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. It's it's. You know, that's where we, the mind-body connection really comes into play. Um, let's talk about another really important idea in the book where we talk about um, the idea that creativity is a probabilistic output of productivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was a researcher named Simantin who was interested in looking at uh, what separates uh people who are successful in life uh, and, and creative ideas uh, from those who are not. And what he found was uh, a bit paradoxical, and that is when we look at people who've succeeded in life, we tend to think they just had a straight line of success. Uh, but in fact, people who ultimately succeed have a history of having tried and failed many more times than people who gave up after having failed only a little bit. In other words, uh, people who are ultimately successful are not necessarily any more creative or capable than people who fail. What they have, though, is the tolerance for more failure. So it's sort of this old saw, you know, you, you got to throw a lot of things against the wall to see what sticks. Uh, that sounds great in theory, but of course, when you're doing that in real life, every time something doesn't stick, it means you failed in some way. It is the people who ultimately were successful whose tolerance for failure was larger so that they could try more things until they came across what actually worked. So it looks as though they're more creative than the people who didn't succeed, but the reality is all they did was try more things. And so uh, the appearance of creativity is really a function of productivity, meaning more tries. Mm-hmm. That's that's so crucial in our entrepreneurial journeys. It's easy to assume that someone had a great idea. Someone just came up with a great idea out of their, you know, out of their brains and then executed on it perfectly and they built a great company. The truth is with every business, every startup, every entrepreneurial venture goes through so many variations, so many changes, so many pivots, so many modifications of what people start with that if we don't have that resilience, that persistence to continue to change course, to continue to uh, evolve as things come. And not only that, the reason why we have to continue to evolve as things come is because we will fail in the process. We have to change as the failures come. And that's what Dean Simonton is also telling us that this is the way of, this is the path. It's almost paradoxical. It's like, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I think you said it beautifully in the book, um, people who succeed fail more often than people who fail. That's right. That's right. Right, because creativity itself, it's not that you, you, I'm not saying, of course, it's not important to have really creative ideas, but the likelihood that you'll find a really creative idea that then works is determined by how many times you try to find a creative idea, not necessarily that you are more creative than anyone else. Right. And it all, you know, it again goes back to the idea that it's not about your skills per se. It's not just about your intellectual capabilities, but it's your perseverance, it's your grit, it's having that undefeated mind. That's right. And 
another really important idea that I, as an ambitious entrepreneur, it's it's something that we we want to do great things. We want to do something meaningful. We want to do something that lasts a lifetime beyond that just lasts beyond that goes beyond what we you know beyond just one lifetime. And one of the things that you talk about is that a lot of times we get stopped not because we don't know how to do something. We don't know. Uh, um, it's not because we don't have the tools to do something, but because we don't feel like we have to do it. Yeah. So there's a couple of principles that come into play here. One is the notion of having big dreams, big goals at the start versus small goals. So a lot of people will advise you as an entrepreneur or in whatever endeavor you're you're uh, involved in, if you're taking it on for the first time, to start small, right? To take little pieces and build up. And to some degree, there's some there's some wisdom to that. Uh, you don't want to be overwhelmed by a giant dream. But at the same time, one thing that studies show is when you have not just big dreams, but even unrealistic dreams, it tends to pull out of you a greater effort, a greater energy. It tends to bring out your greatest self. Um, and so for that reason alone, because people often doubt themselves, and um, the only way you actually discover you're capable of doing something is by being forced to do it in a way, especially if it's something you think you can't do. But if you then run that up against the feeling that you must do it, you discover just what your limits are, and they're almost always beyond what you thought they were. That all comes from having ambition, having a really big ambition. So there's one study of women who were led to believe through advertising um, that uh, led to believe they or, or, or um, uh, incited to have unrealistic weight loss goals. Those women, in fact, actually lost more weight because they that that expectation brought more out of them. It actually activated them more. So that's, I think, the first principle to think about. The second principle then is to whom do you owe your accomplishment or to for whom are you um, actually acting? So if it's just yourself, if you're only motivated by your own desire and your own expectations, it's actually far easier to let yourself down than it is to let someone else down. And so one of the things I recommend in the book is to motivate yourself for you to, you know, to bring out your most powerful self, to 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 um, pull off all the stops, as it were, from your efforts, uh, sometimes trapping yourself uh, in a certain way where you feel you must accomplish your goal, and that if you don't, it's not just that you're letting yourself down, but you're letting someone else down, or that the consequences of failing are really, really painful to you, that is a motivational force that is more likely to bring out your greatest effort, your greatest creativity, than simply wanting something for yourself, but allowing yourself and your mind to fail. So by that, I mean, many entrepreneurs, I think, when they get this idea, they have a business idea that they're really passionate about and committed to, they leave a small exit in their mind, right? They Maybe they don't commit all of their money. Maybe they don't, they think, well, I, I have a plan B if this doesn't work out in some way. And while that makes them feel comforted and maybe actually is important, uh, at the same time, it also might be subtly stealing their motivation. And so one thing that I think is important to think about is how you are motivated. If you discover you're far more motivated, say, by being obligated to meet a deadline that's someone else's deadline, uh, people often find themselves far more activated when the prospect of letting someone else down is in front of them than when it is just letting themselves down, or far more activated when, if they fail, the consequences are really severe. Now, this is this is a very frightening thing, right, to, to close off a possible safety valve or an exit for yourself. But it's something you want to think about creatively because that if you discover having that safety valve is limiting your motivation, 
you might want to think very carefully about whether you want that safety valve to exist at all. That's right. Um, it's such an important uh, idea. It's so critical as an entrepreneur to not get seduced by plan B because it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to have exit plans and strategies that would allow you to get away from what you really need to do. And the example that I think of um, often is uh, in the ancient Roman or Greek times when they, when the warriors would go to another island to take the island to fight the islanders and take their island um, the leader of the island leader of the pack that had just landed on the island they would uh, the leader would actually ask his soldiers to burn their own boats because what they wanted mm. to do was to make sure that there was no way for the, for his soldiers the, the leader wanted to make sure that none of his soldiers had any way of running away from this there was no right. retreat it was either win Take this island or die. Right. And that's where right. I think the idea of burning the boats has come from. It really can be helpful because when you go at something, if you're attacking it, but some part of you thinks, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always do this. It really does weaken the force of your attack. It really can. And so I'm not always saying, and I'm not absolutely saying, absolutely always burn your bridges, always burn your boats. Uh, but think very carefully. Know yourself and know if by having that boat you are uh, reducing the power with which you are attacking the problem in front of you, then you might really seriously want to think about burning that boat. Right. Uh, and that brings us to what actually the actions we can take to build an undefeated mind, to build a really resilient mind. And uh, right. let's let's talk about the first, the, the mission. Like how can we incorporate mission? How can we incorporate purpose into our, into our business, right. into our uh, journeys? So I actually think it's crucially important, uh, certainly in business. I mean, businesses have mission statements, right? Uh, but I think the people who create the businesses need to have a mission statement too. Because in the creation of the business, one, when obstacles start arising and you don't really know why you're doing this, you don't have a clearly articulated reason, that is when you are at greatest risk for giving up. When, when you want to give up, but um, you don't give up because there's an important reason. Can I tell a quick story about this? It'll illustrate the point. My wife, uh, a number of years ago, decided she wanted to climb Mount Rainier. She's just this kind of person. She wanted to challenge herself physically. She wanted to see if she could do it. So she trained uh, unbelievably um, for a really intense amount of time, intense ways. She would get on a stair stepper and do intervals, uh, which in normal times, she and I will do this sort of two minutes at a highest intensity, two minutes at a low intensity, back and forth like that for 30 minutes. Well, what she did is she strapped on a 50-pound weight vest and trained at uh, not two minutes at a high intensity, but two hours at a time. Just achieved a degree of fitness that I, you know, I'd never come close to, she herself had never come close to. And so then when she actually went to climb the mountain, uh, she found it, as she said later, the hardest thing she'd ever done, despite the preparation she put in. And there were many moments as she was climbing in the middle of the night with 40-mile-an-hour uh, winds, tethered to her climbing team, uh, but far enough that she couldn't even see them, uh, and having to climb up uh, almost vertical ice sheets. Uh, and there were many times where she thought to herself, I can't do this. I am really going to turn around. She didn't care about proving how... Um, uh, how tough she was, that was gone from her mind. Every single time that happened, there was a single thought that stopped her. And that thought was her brother was with her. When she initially decided to do this, she sent out messages and social network channels saying, does anyone want to do this with me? And of all the people that she asked, her brother said yes. And so the thought that stopped her every time she really wanted to quit was, if I quit now, my brother's going to have to turn back with me. That was the reason why. She didn't know it. 
until that happened. But that was the mission she actually felt that motivated her to get to the top. So I tell that story because one, what we often think our mission is, we often think the reason we're doing what we're doing is not actually the most powerful motivating force that's there. We often discover that. So I put together, uh, uh, in, I, I explain or describe in my book a, an exercise that you can use to discover what is that hidden mission, the thing that really motivates you, that when obstacles arise, you really want to quit is going to be the thing that keeps you going. It's not what you think it should be. It's not what you want it to be. It's what it already is. So, so articulating that mission is not necessarily deciding what it is. It's discovering what it is already. So this is how I, I, in the course that I put together from this book at the University of Chicago, this is the exercise we have people do. So you sit down, you take out a piece of paper, and you, you write down on one piece of paper or one side of that paper 25 uh, activities that you've done once in your life or a few times in your life that gave you the greatest joy. And then on the other part of that piece of paper or another piece of paper, you write down 25 things you do on an ongoing basis that give you the greatest joy. Then you look through those lists and you ask yourself, which of these activities is not purely uh, self-serving, but actually contributes value that feels important? And you circle those and you, or you cross out the ones that don't. And then you look at the things you're left with and you ask yourself, so these are the things that I find not just the most joyful to do in life but that feel like they contribute the most important value. That's what you're after. You're after what, what contribution can you make that feels like the most important contribution you could make. Other metaphors I use to get people to get at this is imagine at the end of your life, you are on a national stage being given a medal by the president. What do you want that medal to be for? What did you want your life to be about fundamentally? Now, of course, lives are very complex and nuanced, it can be about many things, and it is about, our lives are about many things, but if you boil it down to its essence, if you had to pick one type of contribution that you could make, what would that be? And, and that, that then is how you begin to articulate your mission statement. So for example, my mission statement, although this is different when I actually wrote in my book, is to, uh, to resolve suffering where I find it. That feels to me like the most important activity or thing that I could do or contribution I could make in the world. That is my mission. That is not my strategy because, you know, strategies, you can have multiple strategies to help you contribute to a mission. So one strategy I use is by being a physician. The other strategy I use is by writing, writing books like The Undefeated Mind. It's a way of sort of contributing to help people who are suffering um, where I find them. Um, the point also that what I would tell articulate as my mission now is not what I wrote in my book is because a, a mission statement is it begins as a hypothesis. Remember, you're not deciding what your mission is. You're discovering it. You are looking upon yourself as a black box that you have to figure out what's inside of it. What is that mission statement inside of it? And the way you do that is you, you come up from this exercise I described with a statement, and then you begin to try it out. And you start you know, looking around as you've, you watch yourself experience uh, uh, doing things that feel important. You, you measure that against the statement you've made, and you begin to tweak it and craft it until at the end you have a very succinct statement that you're quite confident that there is nothing else you can think of that's more important for you to do. Other mission statements have been things like to fill the world with beauty, uh, to help children develop to their greatest potential, 
they're they're broad in some sense, but also specific in their domain. And then the other thing to know, I think, about a mission is it doesn't necessarily end. It certainly doesn't end with your death, right? You are not completing your mission. You're contributing to it. You're contributing something to the world. Then you start finding that's that's now when you bring in ideas you might be excited about as an entrepreneur saying, wow, I really want to start a business making widgets because I'm really passionate about widgets. I enjoy the widget production itself. That's great. As long as, so that's where your passion is, but as long as it feels important to you, the most important thing you could do because you've articulated a mission that this strategy can help to fulfill. Then when you start to run into the bumps and bruises along the road and making these widgets and you feel like quitting, my, my thesis here is that just loving to create widgets is not enough to keep you going when it looks as though you're being prevented completely, but feeling that it's important to create widgets that, like my wife, it was important that she not quit for her brother. That's where she found the motivation to keep going through an obstacle she really wanted to quit in front of. Same thing for an entrepreneur. When you've connected it to that mission, whatever your strategy is, and there can be multiple strategies, it's, it's the resilience that knowing that this is important will bring you is how you succeed when other people fail. That's great. That's great. And a story comes to my mind that I want to share with you. Uh, Elon Musk, we all know Elon Musk, uh, the founder of SpaceX and Tesla. When he, like when he was working on the rockets on, on basically building a rocket company that nobody had ever built a private rocket company that spends, that sends uh, payloads to the space and everything else he was doing. One of the reporters asked him after the fact as to why he would take on such a difficult, such an impossible mission. And what Elon Musk said was that if something is really, really important to you, you must go after it, even if the likely outcome is failure. Right, and of course, right, of course, we think we we know his publicized reason. He thinks we need to colonize Mars in case we destroy this planet. He thinks there's nothing more important. So look what that's causing him to to do, and 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 the the person it's enabling him to become. Yeah, it's a great story. Great story. Yep. The other action item we want to talk about is the. The fact that creativity is a probabilistic uh, uh, output of productivity. So it- yeah, so I think in order to um, to succeed ultimately, you have to, to make a friend of failure. If you are someone who, when you fail, that automatically turns into negative self-talk about how you are worthless, how your failures cause you to judge your self-worth and to judge your capability, you're you're going to be stopped. You're never going to be able to fulfill Simonton's hypothesis that. Creativity is a function of, of productivity, meaning when you fail and you will, you must learn to look upon failure as a teacher and not judge yourself for failing, but say, okay, I learned I can't go that direction. It didn't work. So I have to back up and try an alternative direction. That's what brings you to the ability to try and try and try again and ultimately come up with a creative solution that works. I think many people uh, are, have not made a friend with failure. I mean, of course, who loves to fail? I don't love to fail either, but but the first thing is you've got to, to separate failure from your self-worth. I think that's a big obstacle for many people. And the first step to doing that is to recognize when, if you are someone who, when you fail, you begin uh, overwhelming yourself with negative talk about what that failure means about you. It means nothing about you. Absolutely nothing. It simply means you had the courage to try something that didn't work out and hopefully learn from it so the next try is better. And if that one fails, okay, you learn something from that. The real, uh, the real problem with failing is only when you don't learn from it because then you've not advanced in some way that failure was for nothing. It just caused you pain. And by the way, I'm not suggesting for a minute that making a friend with failure means it doesn't hurt. It just means you accept the hurt, you, you, you feel it, and then you move on. 
And you don't allow that to get you, because this is what happens. You fail, you begin to question yourself and question your path. What I'm suggesting is, what Samantha is suggesting is, failure is part of the process. And if you can really embrace that, uh, your, your, your path, the pain you experience, the path will be less and you'll be much more likely to succeed. So I think the section I'd act, second action item is basically know thyself. Discover if you are someone who, when you fail, become immersed in negative self-talk and cut that off at its knees. Stop it. Recognize you're doing it. Recognize that it does not serve you and move on uh, and, and begin to see failure as your teacher. Figure out what did you learn. It's, it's really easy as an entrepreneur to fall into the trap thinking that um, if I beat myself up, if I tell myself I'm not doing a good job, if I tell myself that I'm being a, um, being a lazy person when I fail, somehow there is this idea that if we tell ourselves that, then we'll force ourselves to take more action. But mm. it seems like that's not the case. I don't think so. I, I think uh, we tend, as, as with children, when you say to them, wow, that, you just were really lazy right there, rather than take that as a criticism uh, that they should leap away from, they leap towards it. They're being identified that way, therefore they're going to fulfill that prophecy. I think when we criticize ourselves for being lazy, certainly un, if we're unjust in criticizing ourselves, um, we then become so down on ourselves and so negative, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that we need to stay away from that kind of negative self-talk. We always have to praise ourselves realistically. I mean, if you are being lazy, then you should recognize that and, and rectify it. But if it's just negative self-talk, I think there's a greater danger that you're going to begin to believe your own talk, and then that will sap your motivation faster than anything. Yeah, so part of building an undefeated mind, part of building a resilient mind is the idea that we need to be compassionate towards ourselves and yes. allow ourselves to fail and embrace that journey. Yes. The third action item I want to talk to you about, I think uh, you, you, uh, we talked about earlier as well, but just to touch upon it, which is figuring out how to close our exits, how to stop ourselves from, um, how to make our goal a must, a have to, rather than yeah. something that's just okay if we fail at. What, right. what can we do to close our exits? I think, again, the first thing is to know yourself. And so if you are somebody who is um, needs an exit to feel safe, to unleash your full potential, then you don't want to close an exit. But more people, I think, are, are the opposite, that if there is an exit, um, that uh, uh, they are, it, it causes them to give half efforts or to feel like, well, this isn't working out. I can always go back and do this thing. So I think you first have to identify what those exits are. Uh, and ask yourself very honestly, would closing that exit off, which undoubtedly would be a very frightening thing, is that really likely to motivate you further? Are you suffering from a lack of motivation? Are you even aware of it you know, from in general versus when you're out pitching, uh, whatever activities you may be involved in? Uh, is someone else telling you that you're not motivated enough? Do you realistically believe you're not motivated enough and that's making a difference in the likely outcome? then you have to identify where are those exits that are that are limiting your your uh, mustering of your greatest energy. And then whatever they may be, and of course I can't possibly figure out what those may be for everybody, but people will know, close them. Really, it's, it's just like you said, it's burning the boat. It's incredibly frightening. But I will tell you, for example, for me, when I just started this business, I was very afraid to burn the boat, uh, to leave uh, the University of Chicago where I was, uh, and, and for me, finally, I had enough pain there in a very particular way that I said, I am going to step away. I had golden handcuffs on in a lot of ways. And I said, no, I'm leaping into the void. 
and I'm going to give this a try. And I'll tell you, absolutely, without question, it has unleashed me. I am more motivated to do what I'm doing now than I've been to do anything else in my life. And it is an amazing feeling. It's a little frightening, but at the same time, uh, the experience itself of feeling myself unleashed is something that you do not get to feel unless you have no other option. You don't know how strong you are until you are forced to fight an enemy that is strong. And so, you know, the, the idea is it's easy for me to turn away from that enemy, but now I have no choice. I have no exit. And it's been great. The other way to think about this is if you are someone who is far more motivated when you owe someone else a deliverable rather than you owe it to yourself, meaning, you know, it's not just you uh, who you'll disappoint, but somebody else. And so you, you commit to someone else, find a way to bring someone else in in such a way that uh, to disappoint them is, uh, is it, when you fail, you're disappointing them as well, because the pain of anticipating that or the fear you may feel of anticipating that may be the thing that motivates you to pull out all the stops and actually makes the difference between failure and success. So how you craft that in your individual life, how you make that happen is something you have to use your own creativity and look at your own circumstances to figure out. But thinking along those lines, creating an external obligation to someone or some other entity uh, can be incredibly motivating. You may feel like you're trapping yourself. It's sort of like when I uh, ask people or I help people to quit smoking, um, the first thing I tell them to do is announce to everyone in your life that you are quitting smoking. Let them know so you feel to some degree accountable. If you fail, you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting them down too. And I cannot tell you how many people tell me how helpful that is. Mm. And just to reiterate on that point where we become accountable to others when we stop when it's not just about us, because when we just have a goal which is limited to ourselves, we uh, find a way to escape. But when we have we're accountable to other people, we find that uh, we're way more, way more unleashed in some ways. We've come alive way more than any other way. And there is scientific research to back, back that as well, because our subconscious hates to lose in a social situation. Yes. I think that is that has been phenomenal, Dr. Lickerman. Uh, a lot of great learnings here. Uh, what's one parting piece of guidance and tell us how people can get more of what you teach? Well, I think uh, if there's one last thing I would like to leave people with is that uh, people in general, uh, in my own experience and in the research I've looked at, are far more resilient and strong and capable than they believe they are. And so when I wrote this book, my hope was to provide the research-backed uh, techniques that help people uh, leverage their own psychology in such a way that they become the most resilient people they can be. Clearly, some people are born with a greater advantage along, uh, you know, in resilience and others, but wherever your range is, the techniques that I talk about uh, and the techniques that are out there in the literature really do work if you apply them creatively. So obviously, I think, um, you know, I wrote the book because I would have the same conversations with my patients over and over and over, and I wanted to be able to give my best thinking in one place, and so that that's where I put it. So I encourage people uh, certainly to read the book, but also to find what works for them and, and apply them in creative ways consistently. It's, it's practice and consistency uh, that is the way you build resilience. Not one big intervention all at once that's going to transform you from you know, a 98-pound weakling into a, a, a bodybuilder. It is steady, incremental efforts over time um, and that enable you to discover just how resilient you already are. Great. And how can people find the book? Yeah, so the book is on Amazon. That's the easiest place to get it. It's called The Undefeated Mind. It's available both in electronic format and paperback, and uh, that's where I'd go. Yeah, and I heard it on Audible, so another place to go. Yes. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. So you just listened to a great interview, but how much of it will you really remember two weeks from now? 
Edgar Dale's research, also known as the cone of learning, has shown that two weeks after, we retain as little as 10% of what we read. But that retention of knowledge goes up to 90% if we take action on these ideas. So it's really important that you take action on what you've just learned as soon as possible. And the best way to do it is to text the word summary, S-U-M-M-A-R-Y, to the number 44222, and you can get the free summary and action guide of this book right away.